tonight about a concept or a framework for understanding actually what's happening as we do the practice. There's one of the famous lists of the school of Buddhism, which is called the list of the ten paramis or perfections or forces of purity. Understanding something of these qualities or these characteristics that we develop in doing the practice can help to cut through kind of distinction that sometimes we make, a separation between the inner work that we do in an intensive retreat environment and the outer expressions or manifestations of these kinds of work in our lives. It helps cut through the barriers we sometimes erect between our sense of the power and depth of intensive practice and the power and depth of living a life of dharma or understanding in the world. Sometimes we call this particular talk about the ten paramis the talk that's dedicated to those people who think that nothing has happened in their practice and they wonder if anything is ever going to happen in their practice because the actual content or particular experiences may not be very different, may not be very different today than it was a month ago when you began. And sorry to say, it may not be that different in the days to come. And yet there is something happening, believe it or not. There's the very definite growth and development and nurturing of these particular qualities and forces of purity within us. In an image that we've used before, when the Buddha himself was seeking enlightenment and made the resolve as he sat under the Bodhi tree to sit there and not to get up until he had penetrated fully into the truth, he was attacked by Mara, Mara being a figure that represents the highest enticement of the world, of worldly life. He was attacked by Mara in a variety of creative ways as the Buddha was sitting there watching his breath. Mara attacked with mud storms and hail storms and ghastly visions and um, delightful visions and all kinds of things. And throughout it all, the Buddha sat with imperturbable composure, observing the particular manifestation without getting caught in it. Mara was said to be getting more and more frustrated And in the end, the last trick that Mara tried was to tempt the Buddha with the force of doubt. Doing this by saying to the Buddha, by challenging him, saying, 
What right do you have to even be sitting there under that tree thinking that you are capable of penetrating fully, of fully understanding the truth? By what right are you even sitting there with this aspiration or this sense of your potential? And the Buddha is said to have replied in the mudra that is represented in so many Buddha images, like the one up on the altar, of reaching his hand down over his knee and touching the earth. What he was doing with that movement was calling upon the earth itself to bear witness to the lifetimes and lifetimes he had spent cultivating these forces of purity, these ten paramis, stating that it was the accumulation, the powerful force of the constant commitment to the development of these ten qualities that in effect gave him the right or had brought him to the brink of perfect enlightenment. So he reached down over his knee, called upon the earth to bear witness, which the earth did, and Mara slunk away vanquished. The Buddha proceeded to watch his breath through the night, penetrating through various aspects of the nature of the mind and the body and the universe, and became enlightened. As a result of that, we're sitting here today. Also, having developed, to some extent, these qualities. And it is these qualities that we are continuing to develop that are really what the practice is about. As they grow and develop and we work with different aspects regardless of what the particular experience is of the moment, whether it's pleasant or painful or boring or trivial or exciting. Fundamentally, we are working on an entirely different level. The first of these qualities is the force of generosity. Generosity meaning letting go not grasping, not clinging. Generosity in, in this sense means freeing ourselves from, from a feeling or an inner state of continually wanting or desiring. The factor of greed in the mind is, is said to be the factor of stickiness. It's the force through which we stick to an object. Non-greed or generosity is the force which allows us to unstick, to relinquish, to let go, to move more gracefully through the flow of experience. When greed or desire is very strong in the mind, then we can find ourselves living in a tremendous psychological hunger of wanting and needing, grasping. This is accompanied by 
often a strong agitation or feeling of not enough. We are not enough, we do not have enough, what's happening is not enough. And so there's great discontent and great sorrow. Developing the factor of letting go or generosity is the antidote to this. It's the relief for this. In the world, developing generosity in our daily lives means sharing or offering material goods or time or energy or service. It's developing that inner factor through an outer expression, just to give something, to offer something. The Buddha himself said, that if we knew, as he did, the power of generosity, we would not let a single meal pass by without sharing something. It can be that powerful a force for liberating the mind from that stickiness and that wanting and that grasping. It said, as we mentioned before, There are many levels of generosity. There's the highest level of generosity where we give the best of what we have to give of ourselves, of our time, of our energy, of our possessions, whatever. And we give it very happily without a lot of regret. Then there's medium level generosity where we give something that is nice enough, and we give it after maybe just a little bit of hesitation. And then there's the lowest level of generosity, which is where we give the least or the worst of what we have, and we give it very uncertainly, and we usually regret it afterwards. But the factor of, of just that letting go, of being able to offer, to offer up something, is said to be so powerful that even that lowest or least level of giving can have a really tremendous effect in terms of the sense of happiness and well-being that we can get from it. In the context of intensive meditation, what we are developing can be considered like a generosity of spirit so that what we are relinquishing are things like habits and concepts. What we're relinquishing are attachments, the sense of, of being stuck to different experiences so that what we experience in the mind and the body we experience as though it were water pouring off a leaf. There's no clinging, no grasping. We experience a generosity of spirit, or we practice, we actually cultivate a generosity of spirit through the quality of our effort, of our surrender to the process, so that it's said to be like an overturned pot which discharges all of its water, not holding anything back at all. We practice a generosity of spirit 
by recognizing our intentions and our motives. Because as with all things, we're not really concerned with establishing a rigid authority structure. We're really concerned with developing a deep and pure inner awareness. And so practicing generosity or being determined to practice something like generosity doesn't mean that you should go out necessarily and give away everything that you own. But it it compels us to really look within carefully and with sensitivity and to see if that force of, of grasping or greed is powerful and to very steadily decrease it through actively and consciously experiencing that sense of giving, of giving up, of letting go. When we practice more and more the sense of generosity, we can begin to see why in fact it is said the Buddha always began his teaching with a discourse on generosity because of the amount of joy and light and happiness it can bring to the mind. An act of giving is an act of joy, it's an act of happiness, and is said to be surrounded by joy in every way. And as we cultivate that ability to let go, then what grows along with that is a lessening of sorrow with loss or change because we have developed a more allowing and open spirit. It's a kind of forgiveness of being able to let go. And so there's less difficulty and less conflict as things change. We also find that with the cultivation of generosity, there's an increasing insight into impermanence. When the mind is is afflicted with a great deal of greed at any given moment, then we feel sometimes a strong disinclination to understand the changing nature of things because what we would really like to do is hold on. When greed is very strong in the mind, we want to hold on to what's going on and continue to enjoy it. And so an understanding of impermanence is often blocked. When we can develop the power of generosity, the purity of generosity, in the sense of the parami, then we are more and more able to let go, more and more able to be allowing with things, and more able to understand fully the changing nature of phenomena. So it's a very powerful attribute that we can cultivate both here and in our lives, in our daily lives. It's said that when the Buddha was trying to decide whether or not to teach the Dharma and was somewhat disinclined to teach, he surveyed the world with his psychic vision and the thing which touched him the most and made called forth that determination to to teach, was looking around and it wasn't even seeing so much the extent 
of people's suffering, but it was seeing the extent more of people's ignorance. It was seeing how very much people wanted to be happy and how so often they went about it in ways that were guaranteed to make them more unhappy. So it was a sense of ignorance, of not understanding. Because so often our conditioning tells us that letting go or not grasping or being generous is a very foolish act. That true happiness can be found in holding on tight. And if that doesn't work, then in holding on tighter. And yet there is great suffering in that course. So the factor of something like generosity is stressed over and over again because it is one of the ways that we can bring great joy into our lives as well as develop that openness and allowing of mind which will lead to much greater depth and understanding of the practice. The second parami of force of purity is that of morality, which Joseph spoke about just the other night. Having a commitment and living out a basic sense of morality, of a determination not to harm oneself or to harm other beings, is considered the essential foundation for inner development. To try to come to a deep understanding of who we are and what our lives are about without this foundation is sometimes compared to being in a boat that's still tied to a dock and straining and straining and straining to row away. There's something that will definitely keep us bound and no matter how well-intentioned and powerful the exertion might be to pull away from the dock, we first must untie the boat. So it's considered the essential foundation. There's a sequence from the Vasudhimaga which I'd like to read describing this process of why moral discipline or sense, an inner sense of what is harmonious and what is not is the essential foundation. Morality is considered the foundation for the development of restraint. Restraint in this sense means not being driven into action by a feeling of desire or greed or hatred that may have arisen in the mind. Restraint in action is the foundation for the development of the absence of remorse. And it's the absence of remorse that allows us more and more to live without feelings of guilt or fear or hesitation or confusion. And it's that same absence of remorse that allows us also to die without as much fear and hesitation and guilt and confusion. Absence of remorse is the foundation for the development of gladdening which is considered the sense of of lightness and ease that we experience in our hearts and in our minds from the kind of simplicity and harmony 
that comes from living with that kind of caring for other beings. Gladdening is the foundation for the development of happiness, which is a happiness of peace and composure and strength. Happiness is the foundation for the development of tranquility, which is stillness and clarity of mind, rather than the kind of turbulence and agitation that we can experience when the mind is full of worry and remorse and guilt and speculation. Tranquility is the foundation for the development of concentration, which is being able to keep the mind steady on an object when pointed and powerful in its attention. Concentration is the foundation for the development of correct knowledge and vision, which is being able to see things as they truly are without needing our experience to be a certain way. Correct knowledge and vision is the foundation for the development of dispassion, which is a sense of fullness and equanimity in all circumstances. Dispassion is the foundation for the development of the fading away of greed and hatred. Greed and hatred, the fading away of greed and hatred, is the foundation for deliverance. So it's in just that sequence that the power of aligning oneself with that sense of harmlessness and love and compassion for, for beings, for life, can lead us step by step to the possibility of deliverance. <laughs> to live with a powerful sense of of a moral commitment to oneself and to others is to be able to live with less fear and less enmity, less anger. There's not a kind of grieving over the past, guilt and um, agitation that we can so often experience as soon as we come into a quieter situation like this. When we do feel a sense of remorse, especially in doing intensive practice, it's important to be able to use that not in a way of beating oneself over and over and getting enmeshed in kind of anger, but to see clearly what has happened and to renew a determination not to act in that way because we can experience very directly without a lot of theory or speculation the pain that it produces within oneself. So to understand what has happened and to make a determination based on understanding and sensitivity to more firmly adhere to harmlessness, to not hurting others. said that when we come to an experience like intensive meditation, no matter what we've done in the past, being here, just living in this environment, there is a certain necessary commitment to living in a certain way which can provide the foundation starting here and now for being able to move throughout that entire sequence. 
to not have that, to be trying to do intensive practice, not in a context of keeping these precepts, is said to be as foolish as an artist who's trying to paint a picture without a canvas. There's no foundation, there's no anchor for, for the artist. It's as though the artist were just splashing paint about in the air. It's not very productive. And so it provides a foundation, it provides a framework for what we're doing. And also, in the same way that it is a foundation, it is also the expression of what we most deeply care about, of what we're committed to, of what our sense of our personal integrity or dignity is. And so it is both the foundation and the manifestation for deep understanding. To live developing this power and this strength of of having a sense of, of moral commitment is to live in harmony. It's the kind of happiness which we all want. And it's right there, right here and now, for free. It doesn't even cost anything. It doesn't involve a kind of craving or needing. And it is a tremendous source of happiness in our lives. There's no need to identify oneself in some kind of um, separate or self-righteous way because of having this kind of commitment. To make a commitment to harmlessness is to act out of a sense of loving care rather than judgment and harshness towards other beings. To be able to reflect on one's own deeds of generosity and morality can make the mind buoyant and light and rapturous. And with that kind of openness and buoyancy and lightness of mind, it's very easy to get insight. When the mind is closed and heavy and stricken with remorse or agitation, It's very difficult to get insight. It's very painful. It's like hacking our way through a jungle. And so it's important to establish this sense of harmony, of relaxation within. The Buddha was once asked about his teaching and what would happen to his teaching after he had died. And he said something about the Vinaya, which were the rules for the orders of monks and nuns that he had left, being the life of his teaching, being like the life spirit, the living spirit of his teaching. And that that would be what would maintain the understanding he had personally experienced and help it be more accessible and available in later times. It's in that sense that 
a moral commitment, a commitment to a life of caring and respect is like honoring the life of that kind of teaching. It's bringing it to life because it is the first step in changing what might be an abstract or theoretical appreciation, changing that into a daily living expression of that kind of understanding. So it takes it away from the realm of philosophy and breathes a very living spirit into it. So there's generosity and morality. And the third of these paramis, or forces of purity, is that of renunciation. Renunciation meaning simplicity. It's as though you were asking yourself the question, as you may have been asking yourself, what do I really need to be happy? And it's asking that question carefully, because generally what we find is we don't actually need very much to be happy. That simplicity itself can bring great happiness. And when our lives are very complex, then often it's as though our lives, our day-to-day lives, become like maintenance. There's so much energy we need to expend just to hold it all together that it becomes more like an act of maintenance sometimes than much of a life. And so it's respecting what can be a great beauty in our lives, in renunciation. And it doesn't mean something um, dark and heavy and self-denying. It really is an act of great joy as well, just as generosity is, because it is based on the understanding of our not needing so much. It's based on the sense of self-sufficiency and delight in what we do have, rather than seeking more and more and more. In the context of intensive meditation, what we renounce, although we've all renounced a lot, generally speaking, just to be here, most of all what we renounce is a world of sensory stimulation that we're quite accustomed to. When we come here, we renounce a lot of sights and sounds and smells and tastes, sensations in the body, and a lot of thinking. And we continue to guard our senses or to work towards being less and less dependent on that kind of stimulation to provide a sense of interest or aliveness. So we renounce more and more and more as time goes on. When we do that, when we're not running around figuratively, seeking, thinking, and sights and sounds, then the mind, within that kind of silence, becomes luminous, it becomes radiant. 
to renounce sensory stimulation doesn't mean that we don't experience anything and that it's a kind of a blank. What it means is that we don't hold on to them, we don't dwell in the experiences that we have, but allow them to pass away. When we practice this force in the mind of renunciation, then we can avoid the sorrow in our lives of not getting what we desire, because we are not bound by the force of desire. Also in the context of intensive practice, we try to renounce expectations. We try to practice with an openness and a willingness to accept what comes rather than a needful determination that things be a certain way. So we can then be at peace with what is. It's a very powerful attribute, the sense of renunciation, of being able to give up. When the force, this force of renunciation is powerful in the mind, then we can delight in very little. It's a sense of being straight and clear and clean rather than twisted and complex, and it can make the mind radiant. So even coming here is an opportunity to temporarily let go of a lot of cares and concerns and responsibilities and to live very simply, cultivating this power of renunciation. The next parami or or force of purity is that of wisdom. Something within the practice, which is called right aim, brings about, over time, an intuitive understanding of the nature of things. It's not an intellectual appreciation, but a very deeply felt intuition about the nature of things. Right aim might best be understood if you imagine yourself shooting an arrow at a target. If you're either too energetic or not looking at the target or too enthusiastic, too eager, then it is very possible the arrow will overshoot the target and it will land somewhere beyond it. If there's not enough enthusiasm or energy, or there's just too much sluggishness or dullness, then you might just barely pull the bow and the arrow will just fall short of the target. If there's not enough power of penetration or not enough interest in what's going on, not enough concentration, then the arrow might hit the target with just a glancing blow and veer off to the side, not really penetrate into the target. 
In just that way, our target is the experience of this very moment. And our arrow is the faculty of attention or mindfulness. So we are trying to aim our mindfulness at the experience of this very moment. And if the mind is agitated or restless or simply not paying attention to what's happening right now, then it's very easy to overshoot the target. And when we're falling asleep and we're dreamy, then it's very easy to have the arrow fall short. And when the mind is not concentrated, and we're not taking much of an interest in what's going on, then it's very easy, all too easy, <laughs> to have the arrow just hit the target with a glancing blow and go off. With right aim, with the sense of aiming just towards this very moment's experience, with a balance of energy, not too much and not too little. As we do that, moment after moment, then automatically, intuitive understanding and wisdom will develop. And it's in that sense that wisdom is, is considered a parami. What do we see? The first thing that we see as this intuition starts to develop, or one of the first things that we see, is just the nature of mind and matter. When we look at the body, for example, it ceases to be the conceptualized form that we have been accustomed to. And we experience the elements, such as earth, in the manifestation of hardness or softness, and water in the manifestation of fluidity and cohesion, and fire in the manifestation of heat and cold and different temperatures. And we experience the air element, which is a sense of tension or tightness, and then in its dynamic aspect is movement. That is what we actually experience. We can begin to discern that there's a distinction between the mind and the body. That there's a difference between the noting mind and the object that's being noted. And we can understand the relationship between mind and matter, or the body and the mind, in terms of cause and effect. We can watch and see how that relationship unfolds, how they relate to one another. What happens when there's an intention and then the body moves, or there's a sensation in the body and a response is born of that. So we can pay attention to the interplay of mind and matter. As we do that more and more, what becomes all too obvious is how very much everything is changing. That there's a momentary experience which arises and passes away within the body or within the mind, continually coming and going, all mental and physical phenomena, from moment to moment, are completely devoid of permanence. And so we get a growing sense of wisdom 
about the nature of change. We can see that it is actually the rapidity of change which keeps us blocked or keeps this truth, this fact, from being less apparent. And as our attention gets more and more acute and powerful, we can break down the seeming solidity of objects because our attention can become much more rapid and much more fine. And we begin to see how fleeting, how tentative, how temporary is everything that we experience. There are a lot of images that are used just to try to give a sense of how there is no solidity, no substantiality in this ever-changing universe. The Buddha said that life is like a flickering lamp or like a star at dawn or like a drop of dew on a blade of grass or like a rainbow or an echo or a dream. It's so tentative, it's so fragile, everything that we experience within the mind and body. And because of that, because of a deepening wisdom and understanding about that, we can perceive in a very effective and significant way that this endless stream of arising and passing and arising and passing cannot provide a sense of permanent happiness or satisfaction, and that it cannot provide a sense of security or safety or certainty because its very nature is uncertainty and change. And this is a deep, intuitive understanding of the nature of suffering in the way that Michelle was speaking about it the other night. To see how tentative it all is and that to crave or expect some kind of security in a mass of change is great suffering. So we develop an intuitive understanding of this. And then a strong, deeply felt understanding of selflessness, of essencelessness, seeing how this change, this mass of change, which we call ourselves, is changing in a way that is beyond our control that which we experience arises and passes away due to laws of cause and effect without any abiding entity kind of residing in there, you know, dictating the show, that we don't have that kind of control or power. We can't say to the body, I've decided you shouldn't grow old or you shouldn't die. We can't say to the mind, I've decided that Um, you should be cheerful and smiling for the rest of this retreat. We don't have that kind of control. Things happen according to their own laws. It's understanding that there is no abiding entity in there pulling the strings to which all of this is happening. The first time that Deepama came to this country, which was four years ago, the only other time she's been here, We took her to um, this bank in Northampton, 
not too far away from here. And uh, somebody had one of those cards, you know, that you put in the machine outside the bank, and you press all those buttons, and, and you get money that comes out. And we took Deepama there and did our little magic show, you know, put the card in and pressed all the buttons, and, and all this money came out. And, and she said something like, Oh, it's so sad, it's so sad. And I said, why is it so sad? And she said, some poor person, they keep them locked up there behind the wall all day long. <laughs> you know, and they have to send you the money when you press the buttons. And I think that's kind of what we imagine sometimes is lurking inside. It's like behind it all is this little person, you know, which is somehow stuck in there, having to respond to the commands that we send. It's not like that. It is a changing process, a continually changing process, governed by laws of nature, which we can learn to tune into and live in harmony with, rather than seeing it all as a process that's referring back to some solid little person in there who's stuck it's like a life sentence, you know, they can't get out. And so it's, it's these three aspects of our lives, of seeing how things are changing, of seeing how there is no permanent happiness or security that we can find within this mass of change, and seeing that there is no abiding entity that does not change, to whom this, these experiences refer back. This is the force of wisdom. When this wisdom is personal, when it's one's own, then it provides automatically and quite naturally a delight in the first three of those paramis, in generosity and in living a life based on love and compassion and not harming, and on renunciation, on not needing a lot, because it is based on the understanding of how very much things change, based on the understanding of what truly brings happiness and what does not that in a way that is not artificial or contrived, we can align our lives with these values, with these forces. And so they all have a very um, reciprocal relationship to one another. The more we practice generosity and actively practice a sense of morality and renunciation, the more we are cultivating the ground out of which wisdom can arise, and the more we understand and learn about ourselves and the nature of our lives, the more the natural expression of that is a very effortless joy in practicing generosity and morality and renunciation. So whatever we do in any moment of being here, 
we are entering into a framework which is cultivating these qualities. In every moment of practice, for example, in an intensive practice context, whether it's a knee pain or a head pain (laughs) or a sense of elation or a sense of boredom or dizziness or nausea or fear or agitation or ecstasy that is going on in terms of the content of the experience, what we are really trying to do is developing that spirit of letting go, of allowing, that is generosity, and that sense of strength and integrity that is morality, and of not needing and not complicating things that is renunciation, and that sense of right aim, of seeing clearly, of being pointed towards our target, which is the beginning of right understanding or of wisdom. So in every single moment of being here, this is happening. No matter how wretched or how wonderful it feels, absolutely regardless of what the particular experience is, as long as we are practicing mindfulness within this context, we are nurturing and developing these forces. I'd like to take a few questions now and then um, the next time I speak in two nights from now, go on and finish the rest of the list. There's coming attractions. (laughs) That's uh, patience, (laughs) truthfulness, equanimity, and some more. Does anybody have any questions? <laughs> it might be. Um, I think things like that, like undertaking um, the eight precepts, when you can do it in a spirit of exploration and joy, even though you don't want to do it, there's a kind of joy just in seeing what you can do and how it feels and what's going on, then it's a very great thing to do. You know, it doesn't have to be, even though you don't want to do it, which is understandable, uh, you don't have to undertake it in a kind of mean-spirited way. Um, It takes almost a sense of humor about the mind to be able to say, well, Here I am, and I'm determined to do this. Um, And here's the mind throwing up all of these tricks and being mischievous or even downright nasty about it. And 
and being easy about that without feeling tormented, you know, like, oh, you know, it's so horrible, it's so awful. Um, we can do it in a very easy way. It's good if one undertakes a set of precepts to really keep them. And so it provides a framework for whatever adventure of consciousness is going to follow. And it's good to experiment. You know, it's, um, it's often a great learning just to see how little we need to be happy and how so often, because we are so conditioned to think that the more we have, the happier we'll be, how that might be very different, you know, then the truth might be very different than that. And that um, doing something that, you know, it's not in a harsh way, but doing something that may not at first feel totally comfortable, if undertaken in the right spirit, might prove to be an avenue for great learning. You know, that in fact it's nicer to be walking or sitting rather than be online, you know, and eating again or doing whatever. And so it's a kind of experiment with one's life. Um, if, it, if it can be done in that sense of exploration, and then it's very great. I think that for many people, coming here to this environment is, is automatically a tremendous renunciation. And there's so little that happens here <laughs> that it's, it's a great giving up. And yet there can be levels of happiness in the simplicity that can be much more powerful than the variety of sense delight in our lives might have provided. And so it's good to experiment. I used to think sometimes, um, because one of the things I was very attached to before I did my first meditation retreat was reading. And I used to think that if I had known before I signed up and walked in the gates of the compound that I wasn't going to be allowed to read, that I probably wouldn't have done it. And sometimes I would reflect back on that because it was such a transforming experience in my life. I would reflect back on the power of being able to be flexible and to let go and to experiment and to see if that which we might consider, you know, really essential to our well-being is actually essential or not, or whether there are other things, you know, that having experimented and put ourselves in a situation that might not at first seem so natural, whether other things will arise within that situation that will provide perhaps a very different kind of happiness. Nikki? Mm-hmm. And it takes an extraordinary effort, I find, to 
wrap my mind. I don't know what to do. Rabies flew through my leg and it was super big. And I'm wondering if the, I'm wondering if I could take my leg out and it just mm -hmm. torn and it was, <laughs> and it's very painful. There's a real pain and suffering in the amount of thinking that goes on and the inability mm -hmm. to stop it. Mm -hmm. Rather than trying to stop the thinking, because that, again, you know, is outside of our control, um, it's really a question of, of continually renewing the interest in what's going on in terms of experiencing the stepping or the walking. So noting very carefully can help that, especially if you note as you're walking slowly, if you use the noting at the very beginning of the process, so at the very beginning of lifting your leg, you note lifting, which leaves the time and the space for carefully paying attention to all the different sensations. And then the beginning of moving the leg forward, and then the beginning of placing to note placing, and then to pay very careful attention. Um, so noting helps that. And also if you find that you're lost in the thoughts, just stopping you know, and kind of resettle back into the experience of the step. It helps to try to pay careful attention to the sequence of experience so that um, what we call a step might be, you know, a moment of pulsation and then a moment of tension and then a moment of pressure and a moment of vibration and a moment of movement. And, um, you know, it's a whole sequence of actually distinct sensations that have a relationship to one another. And so it's perceiving it on that level. It's as though you were looking at your leg under a microscope, but not looking, just feeling. Um, and that's the other thing that might help is if you find yourself thinking and lost in the thoughts a lot, then see if you can close your eyes for a moment and reconnect to a sense of feeling. Because sometimes, um, as so many of us have the tendency to be very visually oriented, then there's a sense of, it's like then the little person or consciousness is up in the head somewhere, and it's almost like looking down at the foot, and it's, it's very separate. And that, that can lead to more of a sense of getting lost in the mind. Um, and one thing we try to do to help counter that in the practice is develop a much stronger sensitivity to actually feeling in the sense of tactile sensation. And so if you find yourself lost a lot in thought, you might just stop for a moment and really feel what the sensations are and then open your eyes again, you know, and start again. But I also want to you know, reinforce um, that sense of not feeling distraught over the amount of thinking that's going on or how, or how the thoughts are, what they might be saying, because that really doesn't matter. It's much more a question of how enmeshed you become and how um, caught up you become so that if you walk, you know, from here to there, and you haven't felt any sensation at all because you're lost in your mind, you know, then that's the time to really stop um, and begin again in a very careful way. 
but the actual amount of the thoughts and the uh, content of the stuff that the thoughts are saying, you know, that's just outside of your control. You know, that's um, another lesson in anatta, you know, that you can't stop that. There is no way to just will it to be gone. But the less interest you take and the less um, eagerly you get involved in the thoughts, the less of a problem they are. So it's really your relationship to the thoughts, you know, that's the work. Keith? Is there anything that this course is drawing from, Karen, that distinguishes need from greed, the fine line of need from greed? How do you know when you're at your, you know, whatever your need has been satisfied? Well, I can't, I can't quote, yeah. The question was about the difference between um, having, well, it's having a knowledge of the difference between a sense of need and a sense of greed. Um, I think the the best authority for that, aside from, uh, you know, the framework of something like the precepts, um, is a sense of one's own awareness. I mean, you might, the, that's how the precepts serve as a protection, because you might decide you absolutely need um, something that I own, and so you're just going to take it. But having made that kind of commitment, you will then probably really question whether you actually need it. You know, It kind of forces the awareness back inside of oneself because of that resolution. Um, so that's how the precepts serve as a protection. Other than the precepts, you know, which are that the kind of framework, then I think that we are capable of discerning the most subtle distinction between mind states. You know, and that is a lot of what we do. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.